If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What was the difference between the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths? Why did the Goths have whole settlements devoted to the production of combs? And were these Germanic tribes really responsible for the fall of the Western Roman Empire? Speaking with Emily Briffitt, Professor Peter Heather answers your questions on the Goths. From their debatable origins to their life on the frontiers of the Roman Empire and interactions with the Huns. Hi Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to with me today. It's my pleasure, Emily. It's uh, lovely to be back and yeah, I'm happy to talk about Goths at any time to anybody. Yeah. So, as you said, we're going to be talking all about the Goths. So, the best place to start with this is, who were the Goths? Ah, well, that is the hardest question of them all, and the the single most contentious. Uh, What one can say, which I think no one would disagree with, is that the term Goths is used as a label for some kind of unit of human beings, used in textual sources between 
the first and the seventh century, well, actually the eighth, first and early eighth centuries, where you can make some kind of argument that there is a historical continuity between the groups who are being called Goths at different times and in different places. The nature of those groups clearly changes over time. You would expect that over, what, 700 years. You wouldn't show me anything that doesn't change in 700 years. Uh, But it's possible and um, in some ways reasonable to argue that there is a continuity. And the group we're talking about are in the first century agricultural farming populations, not very demographically dense, not clustered together very tightly, not that numerous, uh, certainly speaking a Germanic language with some kind of military capacity, and it all goes from there. So following on from that, the next best question is, what is their origin story? This is a question from Mary Sandvig on Facebook. The origin story is a really interesting one. We have a recorded origin story by someone who was partly of Gothic descent, but writing in 6th century Constantinople. So a long way distant in time and place from the first time that Goths are mentioned in a passing way in historical sources. The the first sort of historical mention is in Tacitus's Germania from the 1st century AD, And he doesn't locate them absolutely precisely, but the relative placements can be more or less worked out. And we're looking at northern Poland, somewhere by the Baltic in the first century AD. The origin story in that sixth century text, it's the Getica by a man called Jordanes, who's not just a Goth, but he's partly of Gothic descent. That looks back further in the sense that it talks about the Goths having originated in a northern island where they had to cross uh, the water to get to the European mainland. The northern island option that Jordan is plumps for, after a lot of thought, is Scandinavia. And at that point, people didn't realize that if you go all the way around the Baltic, actually Scandinavia is a peninsula and it's not an island. So in classical geography, Scandinavia is understood as an island and he clearly means Scandinavia uh, and that's what he decided on. But as I said, he was definitely interrogating geographical, classical geographical sources to try and locate a story about a northern island. And he spends quite a lot of time talking about Britain to make the case that it wasn't Britain. And it makes you think that the stories that he had access to, and I, you know, I have no real reason to think they weren't genuinely Gothic stories, but they're sixth century Gothic stories about the distant past. It's a long way in time and space from northern Poland in the first century where we can pretty securely locate the first historically attested Goths, those stories might have just talked about a Northern Ireland in in general terms rather than specifically Scandinavia. If you look at the archaeological patterns that are available in the sort of North Polish region, the right North Polish region at the right time, you can, uh, if you close one eye and cross one set of fingers, more or less, argue that there are some links to southern Scandinavia, but they're not very clear and they're not very distinct. And the other point that is kind of fun, so might as well mention, we know what the naval technology is like in the Baltic region uh, round about the birth of Christ, and it is 
rowboats that can take 24 people and about 700 kilos of baggage or whatever. So if there is uh, a Gothic migration from Scandinavia at about this time, they're coming 25 people at a time. <laughs> you know? So this is, uh, this is a, a very slow dribble. This is not, it cannot be anything else. There isn't the technology for it to be anything else. So it's not necessarily a mass migration. It can't have been. It can't have been a mass migration in one fell swoop. It might have been an intrusion of uh, a new dominant force into this particular area of northern Poland. I mean, what shows up in the archaeology is uh, a couple of new habits in that region of northern Poland. Uh, Suddenly, they start burying corpses rather than burning them. But it's the cemeteries are mixed of inhumation and cremation. And that's new. The inhumation element is new. And they stop burying men with weapons. It's the so-called Wielbach culture, which looks to be about the right place for Goths in the first century AD. It's defined by the emergence of these two new habits. They may have been brought from Scandinavia, or they may, frankly, have been generated by... Uh, new ideologies about death and the afterlife and how to take care of your deceased loved ones within a population that's not moved. Both both are plausible. Okay, one of the other things that you've been talking about is about the source material and also what records, um, what evidence we have of Goths. So could you delve into this a little bit more, please? Yes, absolutely. Gothic populations are literate to the extent that they have runes already by the first century. But runes are made to be carved particularly into wood. You don't use them for making continuous texts in this era, only you know, only in Scandinavia in the high Middle Ages will you write complete texts in runic manuscripts. So that's not what runes were invented for. In other words, there's no written Gothic record uh, at this date from Goths themselves. We're reliant on uh, Greco-Roman sources from the Roman world to talk about them. And actually, these first century Goths are really too far away to be very interesting to the Romans. Tacitus is Germania is uh, a kind of gazetteer of the Germanic world uh, produced in the aftermath of the wars between Rome and the various Germanic groups. So he's interested. Uh, he has some outline information Uh, basically listing uh, a lot of names of groups. I mean, as many as about 60. Sadly, I counted them once. Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it's around about 60, occupying what's now Germany, Czech and Slovak republics, and a bit of Poland. So then none of them are very big, if you think of that kind of area, divided between about 60 units, then they're not very large. But the Goths are not in direct contact with the Roman Empire at this point, so it's only Tacitus Gazetteer that mentions them. There may have been trading links going up to that region of the Baltic because Romans like the amber that washes up on the shores of the Baltic for making jewellery. So they have some knowledge of this world, but Goths are not in any close trading diplomatic or military contact with the Roman world, really through the first and second centuries. So there are other texts which mention them, like maybe two. Third century onwards, the density of information starts to build up as the Goths get closer in to Roman frontiers. 
I'd like to follow this timeline in a moment, but I think one thing I'd really like to pick up upon was you said about their name. And now Susie1340 on Twitter and Stabby Squirrel on Instagram asked, where did their name come from? Why were they called Goths? It's from a Germanic word, which basically means people, it seems. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, it's... uh, so uh, there are a lot of uh, names that mean people that people call themselves <laughs> and it kind of means people as opposed to all the other idiots who aren't part of us you know so i think it seems to have that uh, connotation to it do we know them by any other names well what we do see is that the R- romans struggle with categorization a bit in that the in the first century, this is clearly a very specific term for a specific group. By the time we get to the third and fourth century, then uh, a wide number of groups are being called Gothic. And sometimes Roman sources, certainly by the sixth century, are using it as a collective term for a type of Germanic-dominated group. And certainly the larger Gothic groups that we see in later time periods have absorbed other named entities and those other names appear within them. So it is clear that we're not just dealing with one fixed unit that stays as a fixed unit. There is recruitment, there is fragmentation. I mean, even the those origin stories that are being told in the 6th century record that. The, uh, the, the, the story told in the 6th century is that Goths, came over from Scandinavia in three ships. Well, as we know, that would be 75 people. So <laughs> this is, this is uh, you know, this is kind of biblically mythic rather than actual. Uh, but they do say that one of the ships lagged behind and the group that lagged behind got the name Gepids from the Gothic word Gepanta, meaning slow. So that would say that Gepids are closely related to Goths, but not Goths, which kind of reflects 6th century realities, which makes you really suspicious that they're reading the 6th century back into the 1st century or beyond. But it is very clear that the the process of uh, historical engagement with the Roman world involved movement, it involved fragmentation, and it involved recruitment, all more or less happening at the same time. So Goths as such are not given a different name. Uh, It does seem to be their own name for themselves. uh, But we see groups that have fragmented off Goths, off the main body, sometimes called Goths, sometimes not. And we see other groups uh, not called Goths being recruited into larger Gothic-dominated entities. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. 
Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. I guess this really ties into a question from Diego Morgado on Twitter, who's asked about how different the Goths were from the Allens, the Vandals and perhaps other groups. I guess this is a really indistinct time for this. Uh, certainly, the when they get onto the fringes of the Roman Empire, there's a huge demographic shuffling going on. And there are lots of... Um, you can have political alliances between groups that are more temporary or less temporary, um, and those groups can be very different to start with. So the Alans, for instance, uh, for a long time operate with Vandals, but Alans were originally uh, Iranian-speaking uh, sub-nomadic groups from north of the Black Sea. So they speak a type of Persian, and their lifestyle is not North European farming at all, even though they then have a form or large groups of them form a long-standing alliance with Vandals who are Central European Germanic-speaking farmers. They should have been very distinct. Uh, there's no reason not to think they were originally very distinct, but they form a viable political confederation, which plays a very important role in particularly 5th and early 6th century Mediterranean politics. So cultural difference is not a barrier to political alliance uh, in this period. And I think there are, if you look at the sort of broad archaeological picture, um, in the region of north-central Europe, uh, where the Goths come from, there are minor differences, only minor differences, over vast areas, which the Roman sources tell us, were the preserve of several tens of different groups. So um, while the Alans are quite distinct, I think, in origin, that doesn't stop them forming an alliance, but there are lots of other groups that would not have been very distinct, and they do likewise form alliances um, but also sometimes fight each other as well. So I'd like to return to this almost timeline of the Goths. Hugh Burkmeyer on Facebook has asked about how much we know about them before their contact with the Romans. Now, we've obviously kind of covered that, but could you tell us a little bit about the earliest history, the bits that we do know? I suppose what we do know is uh, because of the amber that washes up on the shores of the Baltic, uh, Romans and indeed Greeks before them are interested. And there are two or three different trade routes that run from the, the Baltic 
down to the Danube and then into the Greco-Roman world, uh, different points on the Danube. And the Romans were interested enough to want to establish an understanding of the socio-political context which produced the amber. Um, and I think the amber is important enough to have important effects at the northern end, at the, re the receiving end of the amber by the Baltic Sea. The Polish archaeologists found an interesting set of wooden causeways in the immediate southern shores of the Baltic. Uh, and they were sure this would have something to do with Slavs around about the year 1000 AD. But when they did the dendrochronological dates, they turned out to be the first and second century AD. So it looks like someone, uh, and you know, doing causeways is a real pain in the rear end. That's an awful lot of labor. Someone is finding it very much in their interest to put this much investment into organizing the southern shores of the Baltic, and it's precisely in Gothic areas. So I think enough wealth comes back in the other direction in return for the amber, even allowing for the fact that the middlemen are making most of the money, which they do, for people to struggle to control the amber trade at, at the point of origin. And I suspect that's what gives the Goths an original distinctiveness. Um, I suspect that they're the controlling force at the northern end of the of the amber routes. But otherwise, all the Romans know about them is that they have monarchical authority in a way that many of the other Germanic groups don't. A lot of the groups that Tacitus tells us about that are a bit close to the Roman world are run by sort of confederations of senior notables rather than a king, but he tells us that Goths have a king. And he also does mention the fact that the weaponry is more closely controlled amongst the Goths, interestingly, which, uh, you know, it slightly freaks me out that one of the distinctive archaeological features should be that they don't bury men with weapons. <laughs> and, you know, did Tacitus know this? Uh, it goes against all the kind of, you know, cultural turn readings of Tacitus that he's just making it up but you know it is scarily precise and it does seem to turn up but that's it so they know they have kings they know this uh, that monarchical authority is a bit stronger amongst Goths than other Germanic groups and they know that there's something to do with weapons other than that zip yeah <laughs> so when did the Goths first have more direct contact with the Romans and how was this there are two periods of um disturbance on the fringes of the Roman world in its European frontiers. In the first and second centuries, well, really the second century, uh, the Roman frontier is not just on the Rhine and Danube because they've occupied Transylvanian Dacia, what's now Romania. So they've occupied the Ark of the Carpathians. So the Ark of the Carpathians is in many ways the outer boundary of Roman power in Central and Eastern Europe. And those frontiers get disturbed for the first time in the sort of 160s, 170s, the so-called Marcomannic War. Goths are not named as direct participants in the Marcomannic War, but the cultural patterns of the Wielbach culture in northern Poland spread very dramatically south and eastwards around the fringes of the Carpathians in the same era. So either Goths are pushing some of the other groups who are directly involved in the Marcomannic War, or they're taking advantage of the fact that those groups have partly vacated previous territories 
and and what have their own reasons for moving into the Roman world, thus creating a power vacuum that Gothic groups can spread into. But there's a very distinct spread of wheelbark cultural patterns south and eastwards towards the Ark of the Carpathians in the third and fourth quarters of the second century. The absolutely direct contact, however, dates two or three generations later to particularly the mid-third century, though there are some, this may have been, in fact, a continuous process. But from the 240s onwards, the sources are not fabulous, but they are quite clear. Goths are directly, on occasion, engaged in warfare with Rome in that region and in two sort of basic directions. One overland... Uh, so directly attacking around the fringe of the Carpathians. I mean, you don't tend to attack directly through the Carpathians. That's not a very easy walk. You'll go around the the bottom, as it were, into the Danube bend uh, and, and attack that kind of way. But then also from the later 250s, Goths by this stage have got hold of some of the coastline of the Black Sea and they don't have the capacity to sail themselves, but they recruit local mariners who are willing to be hired out. And we get seaborne Gothic raids across the Black Sea. So between what's now Ukraine and northern Turkey, and sometimes even breaking out into the eastern Mediterranean. And again, the archaeological evidence is strongly suggestive of continued uh, wheelbark expansion into the sort of semi-step zones and then the coastal regions uh, north of the Black Sea into very much the territory that the current Ukrainian war is sadly uh, being fought over in the sort of 230 to 270 sort of region. And that brings Goths into very direct conflict with the Roman state. Do we know what drove this conflict at all? We have no Gothic account of it. We know the the nature of the expeditions, the Roman sources tell you that incidentally, they don't, they don't deliberately sort of set about describing Goths, but it's quite clear we're not looking at a centrally directed mass movement under one king, whatever Tacitus may have said about monarchical authority in the first century. We're looking at a series of military expeditions led by sub-leaders. And the only new historical information that's turned up in over 150 years was that someone cleverly identified some surviving fragments from a third century Roman historian called Dexippus, who was based in Athens and had to fight Goths in the middle of the third century. The uh, local defense force fights Goths off from the walls of Athens, and Dexippus tells us about it. And that confirms this. Um, you could deduce it from the other stuff that survives, but the new fragments of Dexippus's history of these wars confirms that you're dealing with multiple separate expeditions under separate leaders. Now, that, to my mind, strongly suggests a kind of predatory intent. While we don't have a Gothic account of it, um, the general circumstances um, and everything that we broadly know uh, about how the frontier worked suggest a pretty clear motivation to my mind, namely that while it was potentially dangerous uh, to live near the frontier, you came in occasionally for Roman counteraction, uh, nonetheless, it was extremely profitable in all kinds of ways. Uh, you'll obviously think of raiding, but it's not just raiding. Trading 
trading terms, all the cross-border trade. You can uh, take a percentage of that. Being hired as mercenaries to fight in Roman wars. Uh, diplomatic payments. I mean, it shouldn't come as a huge surprise to find that the same group will raid one year and concoct a diplomatic alliance with Rome the next year, or even the same year, actually. Uh, you know, that's just the way of frontiers in general. So wealth builds up in the immediate frontier zone. And I think that is the lure for groups like Goths who originate from outside the frontier zone. As the relationship with Rome matures over the first two to three centuries AD, the, the frontier zone on the non-Roman side becomes distinctly richer than the rest of the non-Roman Germanic-speaking world. By the end of this process of expansion in the third century, uh, basically the, the client's that Rome has had on its uh, Danubian frontiers uh, in Central and Eastern Europe have been replaced by Goths. And I, you know, I think that's not an accident. I think that's what these Gothic groups had in mind. That's what they want. Thomas Keith on Facebook has asked about living on this frontier and did it change the Gothic culture, as it were? It certainly did, and it, it changes it in some very obvious ways. Uh, so, for instance... By the time we get to the late 3rd and 4th century, the Gothic-dominated areas, the sometimes called the Cherniakov culture, the metalwork, a lot of the metalwork that you find there is descended from wheelbark archetypes. So a lot of the personal adornments are grander, more fancy versions of what was there before, uh, but they are distinct. On the other hand, pottery has changed completely, and pottery is now wheel-made, and that is Roman technology has been absorbed. Uh, and this process of expansion, so the Goths may have fragmented into these expeditionary forces under their own leaders that carved out their own territories, but they then recruit. They clearly absorb local populations into them when they arrive at the point of destination on the frontier. So the the Gothic group that we know most about uh, in the frontier world is a group called the Tervingi, who live more or less on the Danube bend in Valicia and Bessarabia uh, of modern Romania. And they had Roman prisoners amongst them that they'd taken on raids into Asia Minor. They have local indigenous populations. Some of the indigenous populations move out in the face of Gothic expansion and there are large-scale transfers uh, across the Danube, particularly in the 290s and the first decade of the 4th century. But lots of locals clearly stay, and they're absorbed into this new political entity that forms. And this new political entity doesn't just absorb these culturally very different populations, it also then re-establishes different political relations between some of the originally separate Gothic expeditionary forces. So, And then, of course, it's uh, very busily engaged in trading with the Roman world, and Cherniakov sites are full of wine amphorae. Uh, you find lots of fragments of wine amphorae, uh, which there were none of in northern Poland. So the range of luxury goods available has changed in the Gothic world, amongst many other points that one could make by the 4th century. Do we have any ordinary accounts from perhaps the Roman population or the Gothic population of just what life was like in any ordinary interactions between these peoples, apart from, obviously, we've spoken a bit about trading. You get fragments, really. Uh, I mean, some of the archaeological evidence is very suggestive. So 
there's a period from the 330s onwards of uh, very close relations between particularly these Tervingi Goths and the Roman world. And in that era, cross-border contact is intense. And Roman coinage is found on every Gothic site from that era. Tacitus describes this in the first century on the Rhine, that groups close to the frontier basically use Roman coinage for everyday kinds of transactions. And you get some production of luxury goods for the Roman market. The the classic one is uh, combs made out of antler and bone. And there's a whole, there are whole settlements that are devoted to the production of combs, uh, some of which are, are clearly shipped out into the Roman world, others consumed within the Gothic world. We have one saint's life uh, produced from the descendant of, uh, or produced about the descendant of uh, one of these Roman prisoners taken from Asia Minor. Uh, it's a, a saint called Saba who was eventually martyred in about 370. Uh, But that describes a world of small villages where, except in moments of tension, the frontier with the Roman world leaks like a sieve. People move backwards and forwards across it very easily. The Danube has a lot of very marshy delta-type areas at this point. It's not a huge, clear, flowing river, which is created by modern riverine mechanics. So it was very easy to go across. And that ties into the broad archaeological picture of small-scale agricultural populations, but a kind of militarized wine-drinking elite uh, who are benefiting from the kind of uh, close relations uh, with the Roman state. Those relations also having their downside in the same era as all these wine amphorae are being shipped, and then three Gothic military contingents are marched off to Persia to fight in Rome's Persian wars. You got paid for it, but Persia's a hell of a long way from the Danube, and the Persians are really good at killing people. So I'm not sure that this was the unalloyed boon that some of the literature seems to suggest, that, you know, the chance to go and fight Persia. Okay, boys, that's going to be fabulous, you know. <laughs> Rosemary D. Kelty on Twitter has asked, how did the Romans navigate attacks from the Goths? And were there any perhaps truces or instances of collaboration between Goths and Romans? I think in the middle of the third century, it's pretty chaotic. But the Romans have a kind of very well-practiced and choreographed routine for trying to deal with attacks on the frontier. And it's all about divide and rule. It's about finding someone who's willing to work with them and using that partner to help to control the situation north of Danube and minimize attacks. I don't think they were ever thinking that they could stop attacks entirely, but they do think they can minimize it. And you do see eventually, uh, well, there are hints of it already in the third century, but when things calm down, for instance, there are a long-standing treaty arrangements which the Romans impose on these Tavingigoths who are nearest to the empire, uh, which last from, they last about a generation from the 330s to the 360s. They always have the same kind of character. The They're imposed by a Roman military demonstration of immediate military superiority. Doesn't have to be an outright military defeat, but it has to be a recognition of Roman superiority. So Constantine builds a bridge across the Danube, moves his army across it, and the Goths are forced to surrender. On the basis of that, high status hostages are taken 
um, the son uh, the son of the Tervingi leader is ends up in Constantinople and is brought up there this time. That's the kind of stick side of it, but there's also a carrot side of it. The Goths are given special trading relationships, which is why all the stuff then flows across the Danube. And also, Rome looks on occasion to borrow military or actually hire military support from Goths for campaigns against the Persians, the main enemy in the East. So this kind of semi-subdued client-state relationship you find actually all across Rome's Rhine and Danube frontiers. And it's never permanent, but it lasts for a political generation. Then when it's you see a political change in the client group across the frontier, you have to renegotiate this relationship. Uh, and re-establish the dominance of whichever imperial regime is currently in power. I should have mentioned diplomatic annual payments as well, a part of this. That's not something that is extracted from Rome by force. Rome offers these as part of the carrot arrangements in treaty arrangements. I mean, it might be not large amounts of gold. It might be some fancy cloths and a bit of pepper. You know, it's not... <laughs> it's, uh, uh, one shouldn't imagine that this is necessarily large amounts of ready cash moving across the frontier at this point. But uh, yeah, that's that's the basic structure and it will last for about a generation. Um, then when leadership changes on both sides, it has to be renegotiated. What happened then to the Goths when the Huns arrived? This sort of, you know, periodically renegotiated stability that uh, is established in the last quarter of the third century and last down uh, the first three quarters of the fourth century, that's completely shaken up by the intrusion of Huns into the northern Black Sea region um, round about the year 370. The Basically, the Huns do to the Goths what the Goths had done to the previous clients in that region. And they pose the same kind of choices to them. The current existence, the current moderate stability, periodically renegotiated stability cannot continue. You have to choose uh, what you're going to do. And we see Gothic groups responding in a number of different ways, um, either by looking to well, basically, they need, they want to get out of the way of the Huns. And you're going to get, get out of the way of the Huns in two directions. Uh, you can either clear off into Central Europe, away from Eastern Europe, which clearly quite a lot do, or you can try and negotiate a new relationship with the Roman state and move into territories south of the Danube. And obviously, famously, some of them do that. But fundamentally, the Huns are an exogenous shock into this region in the way that the Goths were in the 3rd century, and it completely changes the, the constellation of groupings that Rome is facing uh, beyond its frontier. Diego Morgado on Twitter has asked, how did the Goths come to divide into groups? And so what was the difference between the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths? Well, I think Goths had always, well, certainly from the 3rd century expansion onwards, had always been divided into a number of different groups. The Ostrogoths and the Visigoths, which are the groups who found successor kingdoms to the Roman Empire, they trace their origins back to this crunch choice that you have to make in the face of Hunnic power. The Visigoths are a new alliance formed mostly, I think, of groups that were already Goths, but not, not only Goths, on Roman soil, amongst those who made the decision to move onto Roman soil 
in the face of the arrival of the Huns, so in the last 25 years of the 4th century and the first decade of the 5th century. And there are three main contingents to the Visigoths, two of them originally separate, Tavingi and Groitungi, who crossed the Danube in 376 as separate units with their own separate leaderships, but then unite on Roman soil. And then a third group who cross into Italy in about 405-6, led by a man called Radagaisus. And they later throw in their lot with a man called Alaric, who has emerged as the leader of the unified Tavingi and Groitungi of 376. So it is, uh, I There are other bits and pieces as well, even in what we know, and we don't know everything. But three main contingents make up the Visigoths. And what defines them, if you like, is that they've all cleared off in the face of the Huns in that period of initial Hunnic shock. The Ostrogoths are formed, likewise, it's another confederation, and it's put together partly on Roman soil, partly as Attila's Hunnic empire unwinds. And what defines this confederation as opposed to the Visigoths uh, is that all of, its con- all of its constituent parts have been under Hunnic control uh, at least for one generation and sometimes for two or three. So there's a, a, a body of Goths who are extracted by Roman intrusion from Hunnic control in the 420s and settled in Thrace. And there's another big Gothic group who stay under Hunnic control until the 450s. They are, this is, the these two together form the main body of the Ostrogoths as far as I can see. But the Ostrogoths do also uh, recruit other groups besides, um, including previously independent Rugi. But the Rugi had also been under Hunnic control. So I see the Huns as the great dividing moment. So anyone who buggers off from Hunnic control early is going to form part of the Visigothic Confederation, and those who stay under Hunnic control for a longer period uh, eventually come together in the Ostrogothic Confederation. How significant a role would you say that the Goths played in the fall of the Western Roman Empire? The Goths play a, a major but not the absolutely definitive role in the end of the Western half of the Roman Empire. Uh, I think the way to think about it is to think uh, how the Roman imperial system works. And basically, it taxes agricultural production to maintain um, professional military forces. That's what keeps the Roman center as the dominant force uh, across this vast tract of landscape. And of course, the West Roman Empire runs from Hadrian's Wall to the Atlas Mountains of North Africa. It's a big place. The Visigoths play an important role in the process that sees the Roman center lose control of so much of its provincial tax base that its military force has to decline and it ceases to be the dominant military political force in this landscape. I mean, that's what the end of the empire is. But that process of undermining is an aggregate result of several separate groups acting. The Visigoths are one of them, arguably slightly more important because they're more hostile to the Roman center, are the Vandals and Alans who end up in North Africa. And North Africa is the jewel 
in the West Roman crown. You need to think, you know, not of the desert fringes of the Atlas Mountains. You need to think of these gloriously rich lands in Tunisia and Algeria, where Europe's millionaires had all their summer places in in the interwar years and where Roosevelt and Churchill loved to hang out in the hotels during World War II. It's this bit of North Africa, which is fabulously rich agricultural territory. And that's what the Vandals and Allens take in the 430s. So each moment of expansion or annexation takes more of the West Roman Empire's tax base away. And as the Roman West Roman Empire's tax base is taken away, its capacity to maintain or replace lost military forces is undermined. And that's, you know, that's what's so different about the Gothic impact on the Western Empire and the Gothic impact on the Eastern Empire. Yes, the Goths, the, the Tervingi and the Groitungi win this huge victory and kill the Emperor Valens in 378 at the Battle of Hadrianople and destroy two-thirds of his field army on one morning. Uh, it's a colossal victory. But the key revenue-producing areas of the Eastern Empire are Western Asia Minor, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, some bits of North Africa. These are not touched. Goths never get anywhere near it. The flow of revenues is not disturbed, and therefore the army can be rebuilt. The Goths, on the other hand, are settled in Aquitaine, in the Garonne Valley, to start with. That bit of territory drops out of central Roman control. At each moment of weakness, so when the Vandals then take North Africa, that's another big chunk that's dropped out of West Roman central control, you see the erosion uh, of the uh, tax base of the Western Empire. So the, the Goths are not alone in making this process happen, nor did they think clearly, for a long time, they clearly didn't think that we were going to see the end of the uh, Western Empire. Uh, they thought they were going to exist in a kind of confederative political space with Roman emperors as the dominant force and that they would be important allies. That's clearly the model that they've got going at least until the mid-460s. So it's uh, it's not a deliberate plan to destroy the Roman Empire. It is an aggregate process which, over time, takes away so much of the tax base that uh, basically the, the Western Empire runs out of military force. And then from the late 460s, everyone, you know, it's a light bulb moment. Everyone realizes, oh my God, they don't have any soldiers left. We can run this place by ourselves. Um, and that's what we see. The final unraveling is very fast from the late 460s. And uh, everyone gives up uh, any pretense of holding any longer to a kind of confederative process thing. Oh yeah, fine. We'll just run our own kingdom. So after this point, what happens to the Goths? This is a question from TW on Twitter. Yeah, uh, so the descendants of the original Visigothic Confederation, which Alaric had put together in the 390s and 410s, are now the dominant elite of their own kingdom. And we don't know too much about it. There's a big argument about this, but I think it's a non-event, this argument, actually. It's been argued they received shares of tax revenues, but I have no doubt, actually, that they received actually sh allocated shares of physical real estate. Uh, that that's the payoff that a Gothic king has to give to his warriors once they've established their own kingdom. So permanent landed estates. But, and this, uh, for the most part, this is in southwestern Gaul, where the 
new Visigothic kingdom has its original heartland. But this post-Roman world is one that is changing. Its geopolitics are not stable. The last person with a claim to be a Western Roman emperor is assassinated in 481. In the last two decades of that century, we see a new force rising in Western Europe, which is the unified Franks. And they've not been unified before now. So they are their unification is effect and not cause of the disappearance of the Roman Empire. Uh, but we get the Merovingian Franks united under Clovis, and they are clearly very scary and very dangerous and very powerful, and they're very much situated in Gaul. The, the process of unification amongst the Franks then triggers a process of Frankish expansion, not least south towards the Mediterranean. I mean, who wouldn't? That's where I'd expand, given half a chance. Uh, certainly where I'd go, uh, faced with a choice between Luxembourg and the Mediterranean coast. No offence to Luxembourg. And so this new Gothic kingdom starts to come under heavy Frankish pressure and suffers some defeats. And the sources don't, the sources mention it, but don't give us in any great detail. We see the transfer of this Gothic elite from their estates in Aquitaine to estates in northern Spain. That's recorded in the 490s and in the first decade of the 6th century. So I think in the face of rising Frankish pressure, these new Gothic elites think, mm, well, Spain maybe looks better, the other side of the Pyrenees, safer. We'll, we'll move there. So uh, I think they do still have a sense of themselves at this point, and they do make calculations about where life will be better. Uh, and they obviously have dominance in Spain and basically transfer the settlement process to there. When did people actually stop identifying as Goths and when do we see the use of that term fade away? It's only really with the Islamic conquest of the 8th century in Spain that the, the sort of continuity of large-scale use of Goth disappears. The Ostrogoth the Ostrogothic Confederation in Italy, which uh, creates this successor kingdom in Italy, that's dismantled by the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century. And there's no reference to people called Goths after the 6th century in Italy. There must have been some descendants there, but they're getting absorbed into Lombards or just into the Byzantine population, depending on where they were settled. So, so Goth disappears in Italy with the Byzantine reconquest. It stays in Spain until the Islamic conquest. But even the Christian enclave kingdom in northwestern Spain uh, uses the gothic name and uses gothic law and the gothic law code that had been produced within the spanish kingdom has new life in the middle ages as that kingdom expands back into territories that islam had conquered what is clear though is that the use of the term goth and its significance had changed in the course of the 200 250 years that the Visigothic kingdom is in existence from, you know, the 470s down to its uh, destruction at the hands of the Muslim conquerors in the 8th century, in the sense that the originally distinct Gothic military elite clearly intermarries with peers amongst Roman landowners and maybe the original unity between greater and lesser members of the original Gothic Confederation is broken up as new alliances are formed between 
its original elite and sitting Roman elites. You know, that changes. The kingdom is still called Gothic. They still use a law code that's called Gothic law, uh, but you're seeing uh, a reconfiguration of socio-political alliances within that kingdom. And uh, the new elite of the later 7th century, while calling itself Gothic, is generally understood, and I think correctly generally understood, to be a new elite that's formed out of the amalgamation uh, so that's followed the creation of the kingdom. Erica Flitton on Facebook has asked about how they viewed themselves. Did they have a self-identity? Maybe were there any defining skills or trades that they had? You don't get internal Gothic accounts of themselves. The only the measure I've come and identity is kind of one of the hot issues in the historiography of the last twenty, thirty, forty years, um, and it's complicated by the fact that Goths aren't clearly aren't a single people that has a continuous history. You know, there's all this process of fragmentation, recruitment, uh, renegotiation. Identity is renegotiated many times over the 700 years where we know Gothic groups are being called Goths and calling themselves Goths. So uh, identity is a renegotiation. It's not a solid, unchanging given. But the fact that these groups continue to call themselves Gothic and whenever you've got detailed historical information, you can see that there is a reason why they're calling themselves Gothic. And the Visigothic alliance is largely made up of groups that were already Gothic. That's why it's Gothic. You know, those kind of points are worth holding to. And that suggests to me that these people probably do have a strong sense of identity, but some of them only. The evidence is from really the period of the creation of the successor states and afterwards. But at that point, you have a distinct caste element in Gothic groups in the sense that you have elite warriors who are one social caste. You have uh, lesser warriors who are a secondary class with different rights, lesser rights, and you have a class of slaves. And quite clearly, the people who matter are the elite warrior groups. And I think these are, if we're asking who the Goths are, it's these people. And it's their sense of identity which is giving the group its identity. Lesser warriors and slaves, they could be anyone from anywhere. Their main defining characteristic is military ability, unfortunately. Um, that's what they're good at. And when they fail to maintain their military edge, as the Ostrogoths do in the face of Justinian's campaigns in the 6th century, and then the Visigoths likewise fail to do in the face of the Islamic expansion into Spain in the 8th century, then they cease to exist. I was going to ask you about, um, there's another question from the same person here, about traditions, beliefs, and that kind of thing. But I guess in a way we've kind of spoke a little bit about that through, particularly in regards to burials. Is there anything else to say about it? In cultural terms, well, we know they speak a Germanic language. We have the earliest bits of Germanic writing to survive are Gothic because some of them convert to Christianity in the 4th century, and we get a Gothic Bible translation, not from the 4th century, but from the 6th, from Ostrogothic Italy. Uh, so we get a sense of the Gothic language. Um, it's one of the main language branches of the early Germanic language family. What their belief structures were like before Christianity impacts upon them is very hard to say. There are just a few echoes in the texts and... Uh, what you feel you might be able to deduce from what they do archaeologically. Uh, and uh, there's a 
pretty substantial margin for error there, shall we say. So what about religion then? Hubert Meyer on Facebook and Shane Street on Twitter have asked about their conversion to Christianity and how, when and why did this happen? There are always two answers to when a group converts. Very often in the first millennium, there is a power dynamic in play which leads certain elite groups to decide for Christianity at particular moments. Uh, whether we're talking Goths in the 4th century or Anglo-Saxons in the late 6th century. In the Gothic case, the evidence suggests very strongly that you had a Christian substratum within 4th century populations, mostly derived from the prisoners taken from Asia Minor, who then converted some other people as well. So this uh, Gothic martyr Sauber uh, is descended from Roman prisoners, but Christianity had spread horizontally, as it were, in the Gothic world to some extent. So there's that process of horizontal conversion going on, as you might expect. But the leadership of the Tervingi is hostile to Christianity outside of the Roman Empire. This is why Sauber gets martyred. They associate... Christianity with Roman domination. When, however, the Huns arrive uh, just about four years later and they want to move into the Roman world, that is when the leadership group amongst the Tervingi accept Christianity. So there is a kind of single date in that sense when the leadership says yes, but then there is a long-term process of actually creating all the infrastructure of priests and books and churches and spreading the message more widely amongst the population. So you've got a sort of three-stage process. You've got an original introduction to Christianity going on north of the Danube. You've got the leadership group accepting Christianity as part of the deal they do with the Roman state. And then you've got a subsequent process of, as it were, making them really Christian, which takes however long it takes, but wouldn't be very quick subsequently. So... To finish off, I'd like to talk a little bit about legacy and any sort of lasting connections to the gods. CJ on Twitter has asked, are there any regions that today can still be said to hold a gothic population or customs, perhaps? Uh, There's no real continuity um, anymore. One of the crowns in the Swedish coat of arms is the crown of the Goths. This is Renaissance wishful thinking uh, rather than any reality. I've also seen, you know, because the Visigothic law code is does continue to be used in the expanding uh, Spanish Visigothic kingdom uh, of the 9th, 10th centuries, there's a kind of afterlife there, but there's no real continuity of descent or anything at that point. So no, I think is the short answer. They have a kind of a metaphorical or symbolic legacy in the sense that they are the archetype of anti-classicalism and, you know, Alaric sacks Rome in 410. This is the, and he's the leader of the Visigothic, emerging Visigothic confederation. This is the first sack of Rome since the Celts did it in 200 and something BC. So it's, you know, uh, it's a, a symbolic moment in the fall of the classical world. And although we're used to the sort of Victorian or partly Victorian and indeed earlier conception of everything classical being fabulous, you know, this is what we should go for, there have been moments when classical has not been in vogue, when its associations either with paganism or with autocratic monarchy 
have meant that people want an alternative to classical as a frame of reference. So the Houses of Parliament are built in a deliberately non-classical architecture, which they think is Victorians call Gothic, because classical architecture is associated not with democracy and with responsive, answerable government, but with uh, autocratic, dominant monarchy. So Palladian architecture, classical architecture, that's the architecture of autocracy. And we don't want that. It's a deliberate choice to build it that way. And again, when we get these uh, extraordinary Gothic cathedrals of the Middle Ages, that's because they're not Romanesque. They're not, which had been the previous architectural style. They're non-classical. Got nothing to do with Goths. We don't think, you know, Goths, I don't think, built anything uh, that wasn't of wood uh, that we know about. But it becomes a convenient label for the non-classical when the non-classical is being viewed positively which it is from time to time, even despite the, the largely classical dominance of the, or, or the large, large-scale dominance of the classical frame, frame of reference within Western civilization, it's not completely predominant. And as a cheeky final question to you, we've had quite a few of our listeners ask this. Is there any connection between the Goths and the use of the word Goth as a subculture today? I think it's the same symbolic frame of reference the other because that that's uh, that's the other kind of way you can use gothic it's the way that vandal is used in the same in the same way but no one wants to be vandal has such specific connotations that no one wants to use that term whereas gothic is uh, counterculture but not so straightforwardly destructive as, as vandals. So it's only about throwing bins around and rubbish or breaking windows, particularly about Gothic. It can be just the, uh, the uh, determined assertion of the self-choice to be other. I think that's, it, it, in that sense, it is an extension of the symbolic and metaphorical usage of the term. That was Peter Heather, Professor of Medieval History at King's College London. If you're interested in finding out more about the Germanic tribes that were discussed in this episode, then head over to BBC Sounds, where the Forum have recently released their episode all about the Goths. Just search for The Original Goths to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.